If you would, turn to the book of Galatians chapter 5. We're continuing in a series on the fruit of the Spirit. And I'll just read real quickly, and if you, if you want to follow along, you can. But in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, it says this. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit, in contrast to the acts of the sinful nature, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things, there is no law. There's never a time when they're prohibited, never a time when there's legislation that would prevent them. And those who belong to Christ Jesus, uh, Christ Jesus, have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. The word we're talking about this morning is, in most English Bibles, uh, goodness. In some English translations, it'll say generosity. It's actually... A Greek word underneath these, these two words, it's very hard to translate. It's, um, if I were to kind of take a stab, it's very hard to translate with just one word. But if I were to take a stab at it, it's the Greek concept of moral excellence. Uh, we see it show up elsewhere in the Bible. In Titus, it looks like this. Titus 1.8 says, since an overseer... Uh, an elder, someone in charge of the church, manages God's household. He must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, and not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good. That word good there, the same word, goodness, a lover of good. Second Timothy, Paul writes this, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal. I'm glad, by the way, that none of this seems like it applies. Um, and then it says this, not lovers of the good, not lovers of the good, rather treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, having nothing to do, uh, have nothing to do, says Paul, with such people. So this word, Aristotle used it in his ethics books, and he talked about the person who has this places his ego under the good. In other words, the good is this kind of philosophical ideal in Greek thought, the good, the true, and the beautiful, like Micah was just talking about. The good, the true, and the beautiful was what the wise person, the lover of wisdom, aspired to know and to understand. And, and what Aristotle is saying is this person, this, this good person, this lover of good, subsumes his ego under the good. Do you, li do you like that picture? That somehow there's a standard out there 
that, that is bigger or more important than my ego or, or myself or my, my wants, wishes, or desires, that that thing I somehow serve, that virtue, if you will. Philo, another Greek writer, Greek historian, says this, that this concept of, of moral excellence or the good um, of the lawgiver uh, demands of the lawgiver, this idea of the good, demands of the lawgiver uh, together with the qualities of the other Greek virtues, and that in this sense, it was a title of honor to describe the disposition of the worthy brother or sister in society. It describes the disposition of the worthy brother in society. So think about that for a minute. It's the person in, in our city, the person in our community, the person out there that because they've subsumed their ego to the good is one who, like Paul says, is able to manage the household of God to bring about health, to bring about flourishing, not just for their individual selves, but for the people that they have influence over. So there's a real sense in that this kind of moral excellence brings about the right kind of society. Does that make sense? And that's a really powerful concept that I don't know is fully cashed out when we say the fruit of the Spirit is goodness. Um, I had an interesting reflection on the fruit of the Spirit. We were down, I'm, I'm a part of a board uh, and uh, was down for a board meeting and the board meeting was on this vineyard and so we kind of walked up and down uh, in the evening where the grapes were and they were, they were Chardonnay grapes. Um, so there were green grapes and it was really interesting. You had these clusters, the fruit of the vine, but the, the individual grapes in these clusters were very different. If they had too much sun, they'd develop brown spots. If they were behind leaves in the shade, they'd be developing, but they, they had bigger and smaller and, and more ripe and less ripe, all as part of this kind of whole cluster. Does that make sense? I have a picture of, of grapes um, that, I, that I sent in yesterday. These are red grapes because we all know that red wine is far superior to Chardonnay and white wine. But do you see how some of them have ripened into red? Some are still green, yet to fully ripen into the fullness of color. Some are larger than, than other individual grapes. Some are smaller. Does that make sense? So leave that up for a minute as we kind of discuss this. The fruit of the Spirit is an interesting concept. We, we see it in the singular. It's the fruit of the Spirit, singular. But in the Greek here, it refers to a category, like, like the fruit in general of the Spirit, that it's a kind of holistic, the whole cluster kind of concept. And we see that Paul uses in different places different lists of virtues. Sometimes it's three, like faith, hope, and love in 1 Corinthians. Sometimes he gives lists of negative things, and, and he goes and goes and goes and says these things are abhorrent, but he doesn't list murder, which we think was pretty bad. He, he gives kind of a representative or symbolic or poetic list, and when he feels like he's captured it, he moves on, and his lists are never fully complete 
complete. They're meant to be symbolic of what he's trying to talk about with regard to heart states. Whether he's talking about good virtues or bad virtues, these lists he give are kind of representative. When we come to the fruit of the Spirit, there's like nine of them. There's a lot of them, but this isn't an exhaustive list. There are other virtues that aren't on this list. Um, There are other virtues that are important, and these things certainly constitute that. But you have this idea that there's a Christian kind of character. Now, the other thing we do is we just kind of blend all those into one and say, it's like one fruit in me. And as I have this relationship with the Holy Spirit, that one fruit, my Christian character, grows. And if I don't have that relationship with the Holy Spirit, or if I'm disconnected from God and I kind of go my own way, that one fruit maybe maybe gets kind of messed up or, or doesn't grow or is kind of limited or, or whatever it might be. And I actually think that messes up the analogy as well. Uh, I think we all have some things that we're naturally stronger at and some things that might be besetting sins or that we're naturally more weak in regard to. So you might be a joyful person and joy comes naturally and it's robust and it's ripening and it's maturing, but there might be something else on this list that's a part of the fruit of the Spirit, or even something that's not on that list that's a part of what Christian character would be, and that particular thing for you might be incredibly underdeveloped. And I think when we don't see what's going on here correctly, we just, we just kind of white, uh, whitewash it or, or just blend it all together and oversimplify. And I think With this virtue in particular, we need to not do that. Because here's the deal. I think Christians, certainly Christians in America, we love to build on our strengths. We love to build on our strengths. It's actually like in the last 15 years, kind of a whole business model in America. Anyone ever taken the Strengths Finder test? I love that test. Because there's nothing like, when I take that test, there's no flaws in me. It's, here are the top five good things about you. This is, where's number six and seven? Like, I'm sure they're there. Why didn't you show me those? You know, like, but, but I love the Strengths Finder test because it's, it's all about what's good about me. And then the model is, hey, you should be in a job that builds to strengths, that puts you in your area of strength, and it maximizes your strength because you naturally do these things well, and you and your business are going to thrive when you focus on that. So that's the whole idea of strengths finder. That's really the idea of our culture, is that we put those virtues forward, and the things that we're weak at, we kind of, we kind of hide. We put off to the side, or we don't really look at because it would take a lot of energy, or it would be stressful, or it might get in the way of our, our kind of glorified image of ourselves. And when we come to this list that Paul gives us, the fruit of the Spirit, it's interesting. There's a lot of things I think Either we're good at, we think we're good at, or we want to be good at. Love, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm down with love. Joy, I'll take more joy. Like, it's on you, God, because it says the Holy Spirit's going to bring it, so it's all on you, but I'll, I'll take all the joy you're going to give me. Like, I like that. Uh, love, joy, peace. Peace sounds good. It's kind of a hippie word, but okay. You know, like, there's no problem with that. You know, we kind of go through this list. Patience, we might be like, well, who really cares anyways? Like, I mean, we know that 
I, maybe I'm impatient or I don't know that we all are, but it's not like that's that big of a deal. So we kind of move along. But then we get to goodness or morality or moral excellence in society. And I think if we really understood that one, we would quickly want to dismiss it and say, that one doesn't really matter. Let me focus on the other ones. I don't really want to deal with that one because I don't know about you, I'm, I'm, I think our society doesn't help us at all with regard to this one. We are a very egocentric society. Everything is about the individual and having it your way, having it when you want it, the way you want it. It's all about serving your needs, your desires, and the opposite of that, like, like Paul said, these two things are opposite, not lovers of the good, thinking only about ourselves. I mean, these things kind of pivot on each other. So subsuming our ego under the good is kind of very not the way our culture is wired. We know this when we watch movies. This, this past week, uh, I let my two oldest daughters watch Braveheart with me. I didn't realize it, but you have to skip a couple things in Braveheart. <laughs> I thought it was just Braveheart. Um, it's William Wallace. It's, it's, uh, but you've got to skip a couple things. Anyways, the character of William Wallace in that movie, which is obviously a fictionalized Hollywood version, is all about this idea of moral excellence. It's him going to battle with these nobles that are willing to negotiate so that they get lands and they get titles, and then, hey, all's good. We benefited, not the people, but we benefited. You know, why don't we just make peace now? Seems like it'll be good for everyone and good for myself. And, and William Wallace says, no, that's not, that's not okay. These people deserve to be free. This tyrant who's over them doesn't have the right to be treating them that way. And if we have to fight and die for freedom, then we will. And, and so you see kind of this virtue come out of them. All the way to the end when uh, the princess kind of in England at the time, the, the daughter-in-law of William Longshanks, right? She's in love with William Wallace and she visits him in the prison and she brings a vial. She can't talk him into to confessing that he was wrong somehow in being rebellious or, or of being guilty of insurrection, because if he would confess this, his death would be short. Instead, uh, if he didn't confess it, his death would be 20 minutes in Mel Gibson's version, and rather, rather graphic, right? So confess, and you get, a, you get a shorter, quicker death. Don't confess, and it's longer and painful. And everyone's trying to get him to confess, and he's like, no, because then all this would be for naught. It wouldn't be right, how would that help these people? What would be true about that? If I cry out, if I utter a cry, like that, that wouldn't work. And she's like, okay, well, if you're not going to confess, at least drink this, this little potion, this little medicine, this drug that would anesthetize or, or dull the pain. I, I can't bear to see you go through that. So at least take this thing. And she, she makes him drink it, and then she kisses him which I'm guessing is to like make sure he drinks it or something like that. But then as soon as she turns around, uh, William Wallace, Mel Gibson spits it out um, because he says, um, his reasoning, kind of when he's telling her he wouldn't drink it, he says, I need my wits about me. 
I need my wits about me so that I'll die well. I need my wits about me so that I won't cry out. I need my wits about me so that as a representative of all of these people who have died and bled on the battlefield, who have been taken advantage of, that I would honor them by how I die and not throw it all away by in, the, in a moment of weakness, kind of um, letting out a cry or bending the knee to the king. And so you, you watch this movie and you're like, man, I want to be William Wallace. I want to be Kip Jones. Like, it's... You, it's, you, you watch it, and, and we all know there's something noble about that. It's that John Wayne kind of ethic, the person that keeps their word even though it hurts, the person that can keep a secret when no one else can, uh, the thing that really sets someone apart. We all see that kind of in the Hollywood versions. We say there's something noble about that. If you ever watched Band of Brothers, anyone watch that HBO series? Ralph, I think it was Ralph Winters or Colonel Winters that was like headed up that, that platoon, Easy Company. You see the way they portray that and you're like, there was a virtue there. Like what, what would it be like to be like that? And then we think, you know, I should be more like that until the next time you're like, ooh, I really want to tell someone the secret. Or you're like, no, if I, if I try and do things the right way, it's going to go bad for me. Or, wow, this is really hard. Or, you know what, I can cut a corner here. Or, and, and we find that we in America so easily tend to bend things to suit our own individual needs or wants, wishes, or desires. We're not, we're not necessarily good at this virtue. And I think we know that. And so if we put it out there, we're going to be like, oh, yeah, it's cool. But let's go back to talking about joy. That was more fun. Like, I got excited when you were telling me God was going to make me happier. Like, but this moral excellence thing, like, that's heavy. I don't know if I'm strong enough. I don't know if I have the character. I don't know if I want to, because I think if I, if I set my sights on getting better in this area, I know that I'm going to have to start denying myself, and I'm out of practice with that. And so I think we tend to focus on our spiritual gift strengths, and I think there's certain things that we like to leave alone, and I think moral excellence is one of them. Here's the thing, though. I think Jesus and I think the Holy Spirit do the opposite. I think they tend to come right at our area of moral weakness or right at the area where we're underdeveloped in our Christian character. And I think they come right at it and they prick our conscience and they try to have a conversation with us about that and to say this needs to change. For your own happiness, this needs to change. For your relationship with other people and with God, this needs to change. We can help you with this, but this needs to change. You have to focus on this if you're going to grow. It's, it's a lot like a wooden barrel, if you imagine it, with wooden slats filled with water, and the shortest slat is where all the what is going to fall out. It's where all the water is going to drain, right? That you can only retain or hold water in this barrel to the, to the highest, to the height of your lowest slat. In other words, that's the minimum factor of your character. Does that make sense? And I think that's why God looks at us and says, I can't abide you continuing on in sin when you know that you're in sin. 
it's going to limit everything. It's going to limit my ability to work through you. It's going to limit all the goodness that can happen. We have to work on that. And if you don't want to work on that, then we're not going to be able to move forward. If you're willing to work on that, then I'll, I'll really come alongside you and I'll walk that road with you. But that, that minimum slat is the problem that we have to address. We can't overlook it. And so he forces us to look at it. Uh, there's another thing that's interesting about this fruit for me is not just this idea of the underdeveloped piece that we have to focus on and say that has to come along with the others. But I spend a lot of time, if you've been at Antioch for a while, you know this, but I spend a lot of time trying to explain to people that our sense of righteousness, the English word righteousness, is actually wrong biblically. What we take to be righteousness is, is a bit wrong for the way it's used in Scripture. The words used in Scripture have a much more justice connotation than the way we take righteousness. We take righteousness, when we hear it, to be a bit more about personal morality and personal piety. The Greek words and the Hebrew words in our Bible, when they use kind of the set that we translate often as righteousness, when they, when they use those words, in the original languages, they meant much more what we kind of mean by our English word justice, that it's both has a vertical and a horizontal dimension, that it has a very societal kind of sense. So I, I do a lot trying to explain this to people, and this word is really fascinating because I want to take you to Ephesians, and I've got a slide for you here, but this word shows up in Ephesians 5.9, um, and I've got the Greek underneath the English for you. And I want to show you kind of how this is interesting. In Ephesians 5.9, Paul's talking about the fruit of light, right? He's, he's hammering around the same concepts here. And he says the fruit of light consists in all goodness. This is our, our Greek word for moral excellence. And righteousness, you see the word underneath that, dikaiosune. That's the word for justice in Plato's Republic. It's the word that talks about justice in society. It's... it's it's the word that in the Septuagint is translated justice, the, the Greek version of the Old Testament. And then aletheia, which is truth. It's an interesting thing. So righteousness, if we understand it in the original Old English, it meant right relationship with God, self, others, and creation. In other words, a synonym of justice. So the original translators had no problem using those two words synonymously. It's just in our modern post-moral majority context that we've really taken on this kind of individual morality and sense of piety with God disconnected from society that is not true to the, the meaning of the word righteousness. We misunderstand righteousness. Ironically, what we think we understand by the word righteousness is in that word goodness. So here you get this idea that truth, what is, Justice, what ought to be, is coupled with this sense of moral excellence that says I have in me the, the fortitude to subsume my ego underneath the good, that I would be well-formed internally, and that somehow that formation in me or character would allow me to bring about goodness in society so that others may flourish as well. Do you see how those all go together? Righteousness, the way we think of it, goodness, justice, and truth in the picture of bringing about 
in society what God would have for his creation. I think it's fascinating. So as much as I go around trying to talk to people about we un- understand uh, morality wrong, we've, we've overplayed morality to the expense of justice, I also think the other is sometimes true. So I'm gonna, we're going to have someone else finish the sermon today, and I'll introduce her in just a minute, but I just want to read a blog post I once wrote. It's long, and it's, it's, it's going to require... Um, I'm trying to find my wife. What, what is it when we make our daughters like think? It's, it's gonna it's gonna require you to think, to listen. Well, I don't know. Think of my wife when you're listening to this. Um, but I think the other thing is too uh, true. We 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 overplay morality to the expense of justice. I think we also overplay justice sometimes to the expense of morality, missing the fact that they're connected woven with truth into this whole. So let me read this to you. Brennan Manning said, the temptation of our age is to look good without being good. I think that's really what I'm trying to say with this whole thing. But I wrote, justice requires more than wanting to change the world, but being willing to change ourselves along with it. The word morality seems to have fallen on hard times these days. It often takes, uh, is taken as synonymous with purity, seen as a negative or outdated uh, word, or simply pertaining to a certain subset of culture as the religious right. Morality, however, literally means of or pertaining to or concerned with the principles of right conduct or the distinction between right and wrong. It is a broad and ethical category. In fact, the word ethics itself traces back to the classical period and simply refers to the study of morals. These go together. Ethical systems throughout history have sought to define how to maximize pleasure and minimize pain for the greatest number of people. They have sought to work these out within the discipline of philosophy referred to as moral philosophy. There's a whole subset of philosophy called moral philosophy that really deals with ethics, morality, and justice and how that should work itself out. There's another term for the pursuit of the greatest pleasure and least pain for everyone. That's social justice. Ethics, morality, and moral philosophy are all ways of trying to work out what justice in society should look like and the civic or moral responsibility we all bear in bringing about social justice to fruition. Thus, right from the outset, justice and morality seem intrinsically linked. Yet this is not how we treat the two in contemporary usage. Whether it's an overreaction to the use of moral language by the moral majority in the religious right in the 80s or 90s, or whether it's a modern phenomena of wanting to fight for justice at a distance without recognizing our own moral responsibility, we have uncoupled the two concepts and even tend to set them against one another. And I find this troubling. Early on in my career, as I worked to promote justice language in the church, I had to fight hard to show that morality implied justice, that sin, purity, and the like could not be separated from the biblical requirement for justice and sacrificial love for and on behalf of the other. These days, I feel I've almost been put in the reverse position, that in our talk about justice, we cannot separate it from the biblical requirement for morality. Just as James 1.27 calls us to a pure religion that looks after orphans and widows in their distress, it also calls us to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. We're fond of grabbing the first half of that verse in in justice circles, but we don't know what to do with the second half. But But there they are, justice and morality, 
informing each other in the same biblical injunction. When we look back in history, we see many examples of justice and moral categories going, going hand in hand. I have an old copy of a photo magazine I picked up on eBay in, uh, from 1955, and the cover article says, it t- it's talking about what we call sex trafficking, but back then was called white slavery. Sex trafficking has always existed. It's just our modern consciousness has grabbed hold of it. And the lead quote reads this, Europe's sin merchants have gone into the export trade, selling smuggled female cargo to the world. Sin and slavery, personal profit and exploitation. Joel 3.3 in in the Bible echoes uh, something similar. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine that they might drink. Drink and slavery, personal pleasure and exploitation. In Hebrew, the concept of justice is expressed by several words. The primary, the primary ones are the two relatively synonymous words, siddiq and mishpat. In English, we translate the Hebrew words siddiq and mishpat as either righteousness or as justice, depending on the context. This is because the Hebrew sense of the words siddiq and mishpat linked the personal and communal components of just or righteous living. The idea of living uprightly could not be limited to personal ethical conduct or exclusively limited to community reform. Rather, it was the outworking of a deep knowledge of God which drives one to live uprightly and walk justly. Dr. Gary Brashear is a theology professor for more than 30 years at Western Seminary in Portland, explains what the Hebrew word Sadiq means. A life in which all relationships, human to human, human to God, and human to creation, are well-ordered and harmonious. Justice, rightly understood, speaks to the right and equitable relationship with God and with people. Justice is like a mosaic. It's not only about single pieces. It's also about how the pieces work together in a stunning whole. Morality is a necessary piece of that mosaic. When we are thinking only about justice as related to specific causes, say sex trafficking, or single aspects, we are missing part of the picture or we are looking at the fruit of virtue with no regard to the roots of virtue. If we don't include morality in the conversation, or as part of a more holistic view of religion and justice, we run into problems. A lack of morality or simply selfishness robs our motivation for becoming just. Likewise, the presence of immorality is coupled with and often precedes gross injustice, just as pornography and sexual exploitation sit on the same continuum. In short, the long-term health of communities and relationships that justice requires are measured every bit as much through the lens of morality as they are the promotion of justice and fairness. Another way of putting it might be to say, if justice is a Coast Guard ship that sails in order to protect and rescue people, morality is its seaworthiness or integrity. A sinking ship can do very little to help those who are drowning. Justice and morality are inseparable. Justice requires righteousness, and righteousness demands justice. It's important that we think of justice, the systems, structures, and policies that disadvantage or oppress people or races, and not just simply personal responsibility alone. It is also important, however, that we think of morality, my hidden selfishness, my latent racism, my consumerism and individualism, 
and not just global or structural justices alone. Justice is a me problem as well as a we and them problem. In short, we need to be reminded that morality belongs in the justice conversation, for as Tolstoy framed the dichotomy, everybody thinks about changing humanity, nobody thinks about changing himself.